Casey Cardinia Libraries would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands on which this podcast was recorded. We wish to pay our respects to their elders, past, present, and emerging, and to any Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples listening. Hello, and welcome to Book Matters, a Casey Cardinia Libraries podcast for people who love reading. My name is Janine, and I love chatting about books to people who write books or read books. So sit back, tune in, and you may just discover your next great read. In this episode, Sam chats to author and journalist Andrew Sharwood about his gripping new memoir, From Snow to Ash. We also delve into the magical world with Garth Nix's new YA adventure, The Left-Handed Booksellers of London. We unpack a mystery in Anne Youngson's Meet Me at the Museum, solve a murder in The Long Call by Anne Cleves, and win the lottery in Just My Luck by Adele Parks. Finally, we speak with Jason, our organiser of the Bundle Place Manga Club, about his passion for graphic novels. Anthony Sharwood is a Walkley award-winning journalist, spending the last 10 years as a writer and editor on leading Australian news websites and has also presented television shows, radio programs and a podcast. He's also a skier, hiker and a lifelong lover of Australia's high country. We chat to him today about his terrific first book, From Snow to Ash, Solitude, Soul Searching and Survival on Australia's Toughest Hiking Trail. Welcome to Book Matters, Anthony. Thank you so much for having me, Sam. (laughs) From Snow to Ash is a fantastic journey through the Australian landscape of the high country against the backdrop of the fires of this summer just gone. Could you summarise the the story of your book for our listeners? I I grew up in Canberra and that's at that's at the other end to the mountains to to you guys in in your part of Australia. It's sort of where the Australian Alps end and and as you know, you're more or less where they start or at least where the foothills start. And as a kid, I, I used to look at the, the Brindabellas outside Canberra and sort of wonder what was behind them. And, you know, I went skiing and hiking and worked in the mountains, uh, on, on the mountain at Threadbow for a couple of years as, as I got older. But I'd never done more than a one or two night overnight hike. And I did have this sort of lifelong dream that formed of walking the entire mountains absolutely all the way. Um, and then I heard about the Australian Alps walking track and it just seemed like something I had to do. And obviously, last summer um, was a difficult summer to do it in. Um, the fires in Australia started super early. Uh, they started in July and August up in Queensland and sort of crept their way south through the spring. But I guess I was fortunate enough that when I started at Walhalla uh, at the Victorian end of the Australian Alps walking track in uh, December, early December, um, there were certainly no fires in the mountains at that stage. The, the The mountains had had the earliest fires they'd ever had. There were fires up on Mount Bogong in November, which is ridiculously early for that part of the world, but they were extinguished. Ironically, Sam, they were extinguished by a summer blizzard. Um, and so I started my Australian Alps walking track uh, trek uh, in a, about a foot of snow up on the Bourbon Plateau and... As the title, uh, From Snow to Ash, suggests, uh, it ended in a blaze. And obviously that's the reason that you chose that particular hike, is the sort of the having looked up at it and been fascinated by it from childhood? A- absolutely. And, and I suppose the book in many ways is about more than my hike. You know, 
there are a lot of hiking books out there in the stores and there are a lot of really famous hiking books and and rightly so um everything from from um you know wild uh, the famous journey of cheryl strayed on on the uh, pacific crest yeah Trail i do love that America. book yeah and and um there, there are many other hiking books closer to home and like those books i'm i'm sort of the central character in this one um you follow my hikes you my 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 hike you follow my observations um the the trip i'm doing is the narrative spine of the book but i wanted to write something a lot deeper than that um you know as i said this is a seventy thousand word love letter to the mountains so you're experiencing <laughs> the, the the mountains that that i spent my life dreaming about and wanting to explore all the way um but i've i've done the journalist's thing since since i am one by trade um i interviewed oh, 18 19 20 people for this book so yeah you know everyone from from ecologists to um huts historians to park rangers to all sorts of people so that as I say, you experience the mountains through my eyes, but you understand the mountains through expert eyes. And I really want to make that clear to people that that, that gives this book, I think, um, a richer dimension than some hiking books. Um, this, is, this is a trail narrative and a work of journalism. And in places, it's a bit of a farce. And in places, other places, you know, it's a laugh. And in other places, it's an adventure story. And you know, it's yeah. kind of a, a lot of things meshed into one. And I loved the conversational tone and the humour in your writing, and um, especially the use of your hiking poles as your anxiety marker. I was wondering, how are you able to gauge your emotions now without them? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good um, pick-up by you. So, look, first of all, I write con- conversationally, and I always have. Um, there's, there's no point writing in cliches. I've been a sports journalist for many years, and you know, there's a lot of shocking, cliched prose that unfortunately you have to wade through when, when you're reading sports journalism. But but I like to write as I talk. I like to have a conversational voice. And, and that does sort of come through in, in, in the trail uh, in, in this book. And, you know, back to my polls, um, I found myself, as you said, being able to gauge my anxiety levels by what I was doing with the polls. So <laughs> if... I was feeling anxious. I found myself polling really quickly, you know, with each step, pole, 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 pole. And yeah. when I was re- relaxed and having ha- having a good day on the trail or a good few hours, because your mood changes so rapidly, um, I would be polling about every fourth step, you know. So it was this sort of um, rhythm which I hadn't planned, but which I sort of noticed that that was very much a gauge to my anxiety levels. But the Poles are really interesting characters in, in the book, Sam, because I wasn't originally taking to, uh, sorry, planning to take hiking poles. But, you know, the, the outdoors store in Sydney where I bought a lot of my gear talked me into it. And it, they, were, they were so right. Poles take a lot of, um, you know, for all the novice hikers out there, poles take a lot of weight off your body and, and preserve your knees. Um, yeah. So you might feel like a bit a bit of an old lady or an old man when you're when you're um using them but actually what you're doing is stopping you become an old lady or an old man or or certainly a person with older knees than you should have um they they and they, they they help you on slippery terrain they help you on steep terrain and 
they just kind of make you feel good. If you see a snake or if a brumby charges at you, you just feel like you've got something to, you know, defend yourself with against the world. But <laughs> two more things about the poles quickly. I mean, one, I lost a pole. So these were carbon fibre poles. They weren't actually trekking poles. They were ski poles, but they were beautiful light carbon fibre things and, and they were perfect as hiking poles. And uh, tragically, it seemed to me at the time, I lost one in, in Black River, which is a fairly remote river between the Borbore area and and sort of northern parts of the Alps um, up towards Hotham. And yeah, it was a river crossing accident. And, and I had to pick up a stick and tape it up the same way I'd taped up my poles. And so I had a stick and a pole combo. And they became unusual and they, you know, they were a real talking point for anyone who met me, kind of nice poles, mate, and ha-ha. But, um, <laughs> and there's even a photo you know, in your book to show your beautiful poles. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And, you know, without giving too much away, um, you know, I've already said the thing's called From Snow to Ash. There was fire at the end. I was evacuated at the, at the end. And I did have to leave my poles uh in a thing called Mackey's Hut, which is one of the, the high country huts way up north in the New South Wales section of uh, northern Kosciuszko National Park. And a cross-country skier this summer, uh, this winter rather, I'd put out a notice about the poles uh, on the website ski.com.au where there's, there's an outdoors forum where, where people chat. And, and um, I put a notice there saying, guys, if anyone sees my poles, if they happen to still be there in Mackey's Hut, uh, please retrieve them. And a guy called Darren McKenzie, great bloke, lives in Sydney, brought them all the way back from a cross-country ski uh, trip that he did. And Mackey's hut is 35 k's from the ne- nearest road. So he's carried um, my poles, you know, a-, a long way, driven them to my door in Sydney. So I Aww. now have my beautiful pole and stick combo. Yeah, absolutely. Straight <laughs> to the pool room, as, as Daryl Ker- Kerrigan would say, Sam. <laughs> That's your sequel to the book. It's me and my poles. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's (laughs) what I'd like. We've already had one reprint because I'm I'm pleased to say the book's um, selling quite well. But if we have a second reprint, I'll definitely uh, include a little denouement about the poles (laughs) for sure. Fantastic. Now, halfway through the book, and you've actually sort of alluded to this, halfway through the book, you made a comment that only um, only people who have climbed it truly understand why the mountain is worth protecting. So was the purpose yep. of the book partly to help readers engage and value the environment more without having to make that climb themselves? I hope so, yeah. Um, yeah. But, you know, that, that comment was made directly to Mount Bogong and to the fact that you can only join the Bogong Club um, if you've actually climbed the mountain itself. And... I think that's really interesting because, you know, there's, there's another quote in my book from the from the high country historian, Klaus Huneker, and Klaus wrote the seminal book in 1982, Huts of the High Country. And before that book, the huts were regarded as, as trash and, 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 you know, generally as, as things that needed to be demolished. And, and that book helped us reinterpret the huts as, as really valuable pieces of history, not to mention, of course, emergency shelters for both uh, hikers and cross-country skiers in, in, in winter. And, and um, what Klaus told me was that any time you see a high-country hut that's, that's uh, near a road, uh, it's got graffiti, it's in poor condition. Any time there's a hut 
that you can only hike to over a considerable distance. It's in immaculate condition. So there's a real message there. And, and the, the message is clearly that, that um, hikers are good people. We understand that both the natural world and the vestiges of, of, of human history, um, of built history, uh, in the mountains deserve protecting. You know, so if you're listening to this, uh, you're probably a hiker and good on you and you're probably a good person. I think the, the uh, anecdote <laughs> from, from Klaus suggests that very strongly. Do you think, slightly more philosophical, but do you think that some of us must leave our lives in order to better find our place in the world when you're talking about hikers? One of the the key narratives of a lot of, a lot of those hiking books that I alluded to earlier is that you find yourself on the trail. And I think that can be a simplistic um, sort of conclusion. The conclusion I came to is um, you, you do in many ways find yourself on a long through hike. But I think what you might find is the way you should do things better in the real world. The trail itself is not the answer. The trail does what trails do, Sam. The trail leads to somewhere. And for me, it has. Personally, I've been a sports journalist for 10, more like 20 years, sports and news. I'm now writing weather and environment for other people. So I've had a major life shift where, you know, a sports sports writing career is supposed to be the the, the, the dream job for an Aussie male. Not that women aren't into sport. I'm, I'm just saying it's it's this this dream job. that, but And, and I, I've enjoyed it, but I like watching a footy and other sports as much as anyone else, but I realised that I, I wanted to spend my professional time writing about the things I cared about most, which is more environmental stuff. So I've shifted in that direction. So that is where the trail led me. And trails do lead people places, but the trails themselves, the trail itself is not the answer. And there are two characters in my book who symbolise that really strongly, including you know, in chapter 10, there's a, a sort of vagabond character that I, I meet down on the Mitamita River where I, I camped out, a, um, sat out a heat wave for two days before moving on because it was just 44 degrees and unwalkable in that low country, which is the lowest part of the Australian Alps track. And, um, you know, this bloke was, his whole life was, was metaphorically the trail. He, he drove around in his ute from campground to campground, but and I warmed to him. I thought he was a good soul, but he was also an alcoholic depressive. And mm. his life was the trail. He was of no fixed address. And I think if you spend your entire life on a trail, you become ungrounded and, and life loses a, a bit of its meaning. So that's so really interesting. Trails are yeah, he's a very symbolic character. And he's he's halfway through the book for a reason, because it's at that point that I realised I've fulfilled a long-term dream in walking this track, but the the journey is not the answer. The journey is leading to something which is a lot closer to the answer. Which is interesting because you did mention at some point in the book that like you discussed the need for meaning in a journey, that that's an important part of having a journey. And I wondered if yep. the meaning for your journey was clear to you because it was cut short, but obviously it was. It still led where you were needing to go oh absolutely uh, just it, it was not a binary universe that i entered um and what i mean by that is if if you go to mount everest for most people you you reach the summit you succeed you don't you fail 
Um, I didn't do all of this walk. There are one or two bits I, say I missed because of fatigue in one place, because of fire closure in another uh, from a previous fire, and of course from an imminent fire near the end. So I probably only got about 70, 80% of the track done, but I did, the, I did the journey. The journey in itself was sufficient. And as I say, the meaning of the journey was twofold. It, it was not just the fulfilling of a dream, but um, I guess that's threefold. That would be one aspect of it. But, but the second aspect would be leading me to slightly different career choices. But thirdly, would be to write, I think, the most meaningful thing I've ever written in my life, which is this book, From Snow to Ash. And, and this book, as I said to you, is about the mountains. It will help people understand the environmental and other issues that the mountains face. They can live in my head for the 320 pages and and have what I what I already called I think um, the, the the narrative spine of of my internal mind meanderings to to take you through the mountains. But ultimately, it's not a book about me. It's a book about Australia's iconic high country and why it's such a precious landscape that we need to think about in different ways. And, you know, I cast it at one point as Australia's inland barrier reef uh, or a, land, yeah. a landscape that, that is as, fra as fragile as that. And we tend to think of mountains as these mighty impervious things, but the mountains are indeed very, very fragile, whether, whether the um, threat comes from feral animals or whether it comes from diminishing snow uh, whether it comes from, from increasing fire, uh, there are many threats to the mountains. And, you know, it's not, it's, it's not a downer, the book. As you said, there's humour in there, but it certainly leaves you with a lot of those issues to think about. And I, I think you very clearly illustrate that it is a love letter to the mountain. But it was interesting because there was many times during the reading of the book that I also felt there was an element of a love letter to both your dad and to your child self as well. And both of them seem to be travelling with you yeah. on this journey. There's a prologue. And then chapter one, the first line is, I am walking away from myself and towards myself. And yeah. I'm walking away from a job that I'd had enough of and from a workplace that, that just really wasn't doing it for me for a lot of reasons. I was um, presenting a TV show on Network 10 and I was um, running a large chunk of their digital content and on paper, it was a super cool job, but but in other ways it, it, that I won't go into, it 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 wasn't. You know, it's no slur against ten. I have a lot of friends there and feel very warmly about the place. But but there were certain reasons that happened to us in all our lives that jobs just aren't working out for us. And and yeah. So I was walking away from myself and towards myself, as I've said, away from that, but towards, as you said, um, my younger self. The boy staring at the window. The chapter one is called "The Boy at the Window." I'm I'm walking towards that that eight or nine year old boy who would stare out at the mountains from Canberra, which was snow covered in winter. You know, the mountains outside Canberra uh, reach nineteen hundred meters. They they'd be the third highest peak in Victoria. People don't realize just how high those mountains are that are right on the fringe of Canberra. And I was walking towards the boy who was obsessed by that view and wanted to, wanted to know what was behind them. So it was a sort of pilgrimage back to my younger self also to my dad who I grew up in a single parent family with with my mum but dad was was really good even though they were divorced at a young age for me um he would come down from Sydney and 
and take me hiking in the mountains and and take me skiing and and do whatever he could. The legacy that he left through those trips is um, was very much appreciated. And it was Dad who drove me to the the start of the trek. So obviously, coming from Sydney, we had to yeah. drive through the mountains and leave food drops because the Australian Alps walking track. Uh, does pass close to a couple of ski resorts, but it doesn't actually go through them. So you leave food drops in the mountains in, in sort of plastic barrels or whatever you use, something something that the, the foxes and the dingoes and the, the goannas can't claw their way through. Dad, we had a great road trip. It was good mountain time with Dad that of the sort that I hadn't had for 20 years. It was lovely. Yeah, it felt like he was with you. It was lovely. And it was interesting because yeah. you talk towards the end of the book about living bravely so obviously you've worked out what living bravely means for you all these months on after finishing so right near the end I'm I'm finishing the book and because you know part of the narrative frame I've created here is I'm writing the book while you're reading the book it's hard to explain but you'll get it when you read it Um, (laughs) and I'm leafing through a bunch of old ski magazines and outdoorsy things and live bravely happens to be the tagline for outside magazine which is America's uh, number one outdoorsy hiking e type type mag and you know I've always thought it was a bit of a throwaway line live bravely I, I don't think much about slogans and stuff in in life but I do write that that is what the trail does it, it empowers you to live bravely and there's an element of bravery taking on a, a long hike such as this one but I wouldn't overplay that because a lot of people take that step and I don't you know I'm just a suburban dad who who did a long hike there was nothing especially brave about it it was difficult and complex and hard to organize but I wouldn't say brave but the the, the trail does make you feel braver as a person and that's mm. sort of what I was alluding to a few, a few minutes ago when I said I've changed the type of writing I'm doing now I'm looking to do different things I've put myself on a bit of a financial precipice in some ways I've gone from a a decent better than decent you know annual salary to to freelance work and and other other things and it's brave to follow your heart and it's it is brave to do it I think again without overplaying my life decisions uh during a pandemic when there's not much work out there Mm. when you're a middle-aged bloke bloke with a Sydney mortgage which I assure you is no joke I don't live in a mansion (laughs) no I wouldn't want to be dealing with a Sydney mortgage no but it's a three-bedroom cottage you know in the middle ring of suburbs and and it's 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 a killer and and um you know it's a struggle now but it's a struggle that I've had to to make at some point in life I guess this you could you could loosely categorize this as a, a midlife crisis but it's not a crisis it's it's a midlife shift. It's one I had to make and I'm determined to see it through and, and continue to shift my career and be empowered by the trail that I took and the way it made me feel and the book I've written and some of the risks I've taken and keep taking some of these risks uh, because, you, you know, ultimate cliche here, but you do only have one life and it's. I just felt deeply compelled to to take some of the risks I've always wanted to take. And yeah, living bravely, yep, the book and the trail itself helped me do that. No question about that. Was it hard to know how to finish the book without finishing the hike? No, it was easy because, uh, look, I'm not going to give away the the, the image that is literally in the last paragraph. But (laughs) in a sense, 
you know, Hicus Interruptus was the symbol of the Black Summer. I was airlifted out of the park because of the fires. I was the last person evacuated from the largest national park in New South Wales, Kosciuszko National Park, uh, on, on New Year's Eve. I was lucky, but I was also thorough in that I had my trip logged properly with national parks and they, they knew exactly where to look for me. When I went to pick up one of my food drops, I, I never got to my last food drop and it was sitting under a bridge at a place called Kyandra, which trivia, trivia time, was a goldfields high country village, which is now a ghost town. And yeah. it was the site of the world's first ski club in 1861. Um, <laughs> and the Norwegians at the Norwegians hate that, Sam, because Norway uh, claims to be the birthplace of skiing and they had the world's first ski club in about 1862 and they, they can't bear the fact that a hot desert country like Australia beat them to have the world's first ski club, but we did. bunch of old gold miners. Anyway, back to Kyandra. At that spot, I, ha- I had under the bridge a food drop, under a bridge under the road, and miraculously, though, fire swept through that valley and destroyed a classic bluestone uh, courthouse built in the 1800s. It destroyed everything. My food drop was completely untouched. I'm not going to give the ending away, but there was an image of certain items that were in there that that provided absolutely the perfect ending. So, you know, the hike was the... The, the the fires were the story of the summer and so to end with the fires was a good ending but then that little image really I felt like was the cherry on top. I know you're already a journalist but could you tell us a bit about your yeah. journey to publication for the book? Yeah sure for, for all the writers out there. Um, look I I approached a publisher that I knew I, I suppose as a journo you know I did have uh, a bit of a a front seat, you know, I certainly didn't have to go through the slush pile, as, as they call it, of unsolicited manuscripts. So I did contact a publisher that I know at Hachette Australia, which is one of our largest publishers now. And um, I guess I was just lucky. She, she liked the idea before I went. She said, do the hike, come back. You know, I, I thought I might write something, but I didn't know what. Um, and then when I came back, I did know what. And I wrote her two chapters and she said, I'm taking it to the acquisitions meeting next week, which is where they decide what they're going to publish sort of nine months down the track. And it was as simple as that. I, I got I breezed through acquisitions, I'm told. And I told you the hike finished on New Year's Eve. By February, I had a book contract. By April, I'd written 70,000 words. And Amazing. by August, we had a book on the shelf. When you're a digital journalist, you learn to write really fast, Sam, but if you write too fast, can, can, can write something pretty trashy. So I'd like to assure your listeners this is not trashy, um, I hope. It's but not trashy. I'll guess, assure them too. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> but I guess the, the, the key is that I used the phrase twice already, 70,000 word love letter to the mountains. This love letter to the mountains has been in my head my whole life. I always knew I wanted to write something meaningful and and readable about the Australian Alps. I, I didn't know what I'd write, but once I had this hike as the narrative spine, to use another phrase I've, I've used, I found that so much material, uh, ancillary material, that wasn't necessarily about the hike, uh, 
I, I was able to draw in really quickly. So, you know, a lot of the, the, the skill in writing a, a, a book length work is how do I bring everything in and structure it? And I had that structure. I had the linear trail and it was just a matter of bringing things in really quickly. And oh, I worked hard. I mean, when I say I wrote it in two months, I, I wrote it in two months of 18 hour days out in my back shed, which is also my office where, where my uh, hiking poles now live. But, but um, yeah, it, it, um, I was fortunate that I knew someone in publishing and that I was able to pull it together very, very quickly. And do you have plans for another book? Yes, I do. I've got a contract sitting in front of me now, actually, and I, I, I can't, um, I'm sorry, but I can't specify exactly what it's going to be about. But for those lovers of the high country, it is definitely high country related. And this one's not about me. This one's about a hot issue in the high country. And it's very controversial. And it's going to have a lot of amazing characters in it. And I'm starting my first research trip down there tomorrow. Because uh, here in New South Wales, we're we're still touch wood free to move around from from various uh, within within the state. So, yeah, I'll be writing about the mountains before uh, before I'll be writing about the mountains again. Uh, it is it is my great love in the Australian context, and I think um, I think we might have a good one there too. But uh, you know, I, I, I'm just um, grateful to have this this one down, and and I hope that any of your listeners, if they get it. I urge them to get in touch with me. I'm, I'm on Facebook and Twitter, especially on Twitter as a journalist at Ant Sharwood. And I'm always chatting to people and I'm certainly not one of those aloof authors. If, if, if you uh, grab it and enjoy it, say hello. If you grab it and you don't enjoy it, say hello anyway. And, and I'm happy to <laughs> chat to anyone. Oh, we're, well, I'm looking forward to reading the next book. That'll be fantastic. Anthony Sharwood, thanks so much for chatting with us today. From Snow to Ash is available in hard copy from the library catalogue, so please place a hold on it today. Thanks, Anthony. Thanks so much for having me. That was Sam speaking with author and journalist Andrew Sharwood about his new memoir, From Snow to Ash. Spring is a great time to freshen up your to-be-read list. Here are some titles our staff have been buzzing about. If you're looking for something fantastical to take your mind off all of the seriousness of 2020, look no further than Garth Nix's latest novel, The Left-Handed Booksellers of London. This fantastic urban fantasy set in Britain takes us back to the 80s as Susan Arkshaw, who has just hit the age of 18, is setting off for the big smoke to get a career and perhaps track down her father, who she never knew. On her journey, she stumbles across some magical monstrosities and she is rescued by a mysteriously well-dressed gentleman named Merlin. Merlin is a member of the Booksellers of London, a secret society of magic-fighting warriors who, by day, appear to sell old musty copies of books, but by night track down the monsters and put them back in their place. Garth Nix has written a roller coaster ride of adventure here. There is lots to be enjoyed. The characters are fun, bouncing off the page with personality, and there is some very funny dialogue between them. The monsters err on the side of spooky, but not terrifying. 
there is some uh, very action-packed and quite violent battles between some undead creatures and the booksellers. But nothing much worse than your Rollings or your Kaufmans. If you like fantasy fiction and you are looking for something for a young adult reader, then look no further than Garth Nix, the left-handed booksellers of London. Possibly the longest book title of 2020. Hi, it's Jenny here from Casey Cadinia Libraries, Bunjil Place Branch. Today I'm going to tell you about a story I've just read called Meet Me at the Museum. It's written by Anne Youngson. It's a beautiful story and it really took me by surprise. I didn't expect to love it as much as I did. It's told solely through the letters between Tina, an English farmer's wife in her 60s, and Anders, who is the curator of the Silkborg Museum in Denmark. Tina has lost her way in life and is questioning her very existence. She lives a quiet and very structured life on the farm full of routine and she is bereft after the loss of her very dear and close friend Bella. As schoolgirls back about 50 years ago, they had been asked to write letters to Professor Glob, who was the then curator of the Silkborg Museum, to ask him questions about Tolland Man. Tolland Man was the man found in the peat bog. He fell into the bog 400, about 400 BC and died and was perfectly preserved. Professor Glob later dedicates the book he's written about Tolland Man to girls in the history class. And this starts Tina and Bella's lifelong obsession with Tolland Man. They both dream of the day that they will travel to Denmark together to actually see him in person. However, life gets in the way, and now Tina is grieving for her long-lost friend. She writes one more to Professor Glob, searching for some meaning to her life. Professor Glob, of course, is long since dead, but Anders, the current curator, answers her letter. He too is grieving after the loss of his beloved wife, and though they are total strangers, they slowly begin to pour their hearts and souls, hopes and dreams into the letters. In the process, they become closer to each other than the people who are closest to them. What starts off as polite conversation, answering questions about history, slowly turns into a very intimate friendship. Will they ever get to meet in person? I recommend this book for anyone who loves a good old-fashioned love story or stories about older women who are at the crossroads in their life. And I think I'll give it a good four out of five stars. Enjoy. The Long Call is set in North Devon, a beautiful but slightly remote coastal region in the UK. Typically, the book begins with a body on a beach, and as we learn more about the dead man, we learn more about the Woodyard, a community art centre where he was a volunteer. Then a young woman with Down syndrome who also attends the Woodyard disappears, and the case becomes more complex and sensitive. I was thrilled that this mainstream novel's new character was a happily married gay man, and it has very little bearing on the story. We definitely need more diversity in the mainstream, I reckon. Matthew grew up in a fundamental Christian sect and was destined to be a preacher. When he lost his faith, he was cast out by the fellowship and he finds a sense of order and justice that he experienced in his youth in his work as a police officer. At the start of the book, he's just returned to North Devon, the place of his childhood with his husband. The murder on Crow Point is his first case. 
And Cleves has a way of developing complex characters with depth, but keeps the mystery rocking along without complication. It was a quick, easy, engaging read. Just what I needed in lockdown 2.0 to get me back into reading mode. For someone that doesn't read crime, mysteries or murders, I found it perfect for a Sunday afternoon on the couch. This book is also available on RB Digital and BorrowBox. Hello, I'm Janine from Bundjal Place Library and I've been reading Just My Luck by English author Adele Parks. It's everyone's dream to win the lottery and that is what happens to Lexi and Jake when they are the sole winners of 18 million pounds. Or are they? They have been in a syndicate with two other couples for 15 years and only the week before, both the other couples pulled out of the syndicate. Or did they? What follows is an interesting story. We have Jake who is determined to tell everyone who will listen about their win by buying a flashy car and letting their two children buy whatever they want and tell them that school is now optional. Lexi, on the other hand, is a social worker and has a social conscience and is not happy with the way her husband and children are acting. There is also the matter of the other two couples who want to claim their share of the winnings and say that they didn't pull out of the syndicate. But there is more to these six friends that meet the eye and little by little, secrets are revealed. And after a celebration party where someone is kidnapped, things go from bad to worse and the extent of the lies, greed and intertangled secrets of the six people are uncovered all leading to a multi-shock ending that keeps on giving. It's an interesting story that highlights the fact that money does not bring happiness and in fact can put your life in danger. This was a real page turner that was gripping and the twists were utterly astounding. Lies and secrets were unfolded. Money changes everything. I really enjoyed this book and will be keen to read more of the author's backlist in the future. Just My Luck is available to borrow from the library and I encourage anyone who likes novels with lots of twists and turns to reserve now. Comics and graphic novels have taken the big screen by storm and it's no surprise that they are the most popular titles in our young adult collection. From Batman to Minecraft, there is a comic to suit everyone. And Jason, our Manga Club organiser, shares a bit of insight into why you should check them out. Hi everybody, my name is Jason and I'm from Bunjil Place Library and I run the Manga Club and I'm into all things graphic novels. Uh, and I've been running Manga Club for about a year and a bit now at Bunjil Place. So along with anime and manga being around everywhere in Asia, uh, we also had a lot of comic Book TV shows like Spider-Man, the 70s Batman cartoon show would air on the English channels and from uh, even our newspaper strips had the one-page comic strips from Stan Lee and John Romita who used to draw them and that kind of got us into it. My brother was really into drawing when he was little and I used to just copy him and we'd draw you know, all our Marvel characters and DC characters and a lot of anime characters that we'd see on TV. I got into reading through a lot uh, of comics and manga and that really really actually helped my reading a lot and I'm pretty uh, I'd say a pretty proficient speller these days I don't know how relevant that is but a lot of that was actually from reading a lot of the manga and comic books that I was exposed to 
I think the easiest way to get people into a particular graphic novel is, yeah, pretty much their interest. And if they have seen anything out there that they kind of lean towards and they want to find more information about, for example, obviously if you've seen The Avengers, then you'd recommend key story points in the Avengers history. Well, we had a person at Manga Club who was really into volleyball, and there is actually a manga for volleyball called Haiki. And yeah, she flipped through that and she found it was pretty interesting. So manga covers a whole bunch of genres that many other comic genres usually don't. And they include uh, anything, cooking, sewing, a lot of sports. Uh, but yeah, manga covers a lot of stuff. The main two mainstream houses, DC Comics and Marvel, uh, they do mostly focus on superheroes and sometimes they do verge onto other things. But then that's where the in- indies come in. The independent publishers like Malibu who just get anybody to create a comic for them um and then yeah these those do take off uh we get walking dead from independent publishers and once they become a hit they, they just go basic appeal is just it's easy to read and easy to get into right off the bat uh, as the old saying goes a picture is worth a thousand words and there are many things that a good artist can depict in a drawing that takes quite a few paragraphs of text to convey and anyone who's read tolkien not bagging him um can understand that Expressions and emotions can be conveyed very well through a really good artist. A lot of the items I borrowed from my primary school library was just Tintin and Asterix, and my librarian was actually trying to branch out into other things, but I really found other books really hard to read. Um, so I think a lot of that comes into play as well. Um, but in terms of regular graphic novels for older young adults, um, I think the mainstream market has really put the spotlight on these stories, like such as with the Marvel and DC movies and also all the indie shows that get adapted onto Netflix. And that has really brought out the comics, which were still kind of in the grey subculture, to mainstream pop culture. Um, so I think there's more exposure to it now than ever before. Um, and so, yeah, there just seems to be more demand for it. But I think for younger readers, uh, things like John Lewis Tilton and Dave Hilke, um, they are... Yeah, just really easy to get into, and they're not very taxing. Um, manga, again, covers many, many genres, and there's definitely something there for anybody who's into something that they can find in manga as well. Other than that, though, I think it really just comes down to experimenting with particular interests or genres that you personally like, and then branching out from there. That was Jason speaking about what makes graphic novels worth reading. You can find some great drawing tutorials and animation videos from Jason on the Library at Home section of the Casey Cardinia Library's website. For more details on the books mentioned in this podcast, as well as information from the library, head to www.cclc.vic.gov.au or visit our new Facebook group, In a Nook with a Book, where you can let us know what you've been reading. Until next time, this has been Janine and you've been listening to Book Matters, a CCLC podcast for people who like to read, made by people who love reading. Goodbye.